Bonjour. This is Thomas Chatterton Williams, your host for Americans in Paris, a podcast of the American Scholar. We're coming to you from the American Library in Paris, which, along with the Phi Beta Kappa Society, is sponsoring this episode. Today, it's a real pleasure to be speaking with Claude Grunitsky. Claude is the founder of True Africa, a media platform funded by Google's Digital News Initiative. He is the founder of the pioneering magazine Trace, which made a huge impression on me in the 90s and early 2000s. Claude was raised between Lomé, Togo, Washington, D.C., Paris, London, and New York. He speaks six languages and carries three passports, all of which has shaped his transcultural philosophy and informed the creative energy of his media ventures. A graduate of MIT, Claude is a trustee and the chairman of the Institutional Advance Committee at Mass MoCA, a leading contemporary art museum in Massachusetts. Claude is also a trustee at Humanity in Action, a foundation that works internationally to build global leadership, defend democracy, protect minorities, and improve human rights. He is a visiting social innovator at Harvard Kennedy School's Social Innovation and Change Initiative. Claude, you've been an American since the Obama era, but there are no national borders large enough to contain you. Welcome. Such a pleasure to be here, Thomas. Where are you coming from on this, on this gloomy Paris day? I'm literally coming from Auvergne, south central France, and, and, and literally on the worst train you can imagine. Five-hour ride to get here to Paris on this rainy day. <laughs> so so you're, when I think of Americans in Paris, I need to expand my understanding of what an American is. You've been an American since... For about a decade 2010 now. or so? Yeah. Okay. And that's your third national identity that you've collected? Yeah, I consider myself a serial immigrant who ends up being naturalized. So how did you, tell me how you grew up, because one of the things that's so interesting about you is your name, your country of origin, or what people assume is your country of origin, and how people make sense of these disparate threads of identity that you weave together. Yeah, the name has always been confusing and misleading for a lot of people because it's this very Polish name. And that name came from my great-grandfather, Harry Grunitsky, who was a Pole, who literally left Poland to move to Togo in 1900. And when he got to Togo, he married four Togolese women and had 14 children. And literally from that one man alone, there's more than a thousand Grunitskys in Togo now. <laughs> so we're the Poles of Togo, but it just so happens that I ended up uh, growing up in a lot of different places. You know, my identity is Togolese. Both my parents are Togolese. But I ended up uh, growing up in Washington, D.C. because my dad had been an ambassador for Togo in D.C. when I was um, around eight years old. And then when he was fired when I was 12, uh, we moved here to Paris, my sister and I. I went to boarding school outside of Paris and, and so did my sister to a Catholic boarding school. And then we just ended up growing up in Paris as teenagers in Paris. Then I moved to London and then moved to New York. So yeah. it's, been, it's, been, it's been a nomadic lifestyle. It's been a nomadic lifestyle. And you commute, you're a transatlantic commuter, like James Baldwin uh, famously called himself. I, mean, I, I think of you as a, as a New York friend, but you've been going back and forth the whole time I've known you. Um, what, how do you, you've also done you know, quite a lot of work on identity and, and culture and, and cosmopolitanism, and you've coined the term transculturalism. How do you define yourself today, or are the definitions that we use uh, necessarily inadequate when we talk about the way that many of us live now? I think it really depends on who's asking the question, mm -hmm. because the American perspective is very U.S.-centric. Whereas the French perspective is very much looking at Togo as a former French colony. And so if I identify here in France as, an, as a French citizen, 
immediately people will ask me, well, where are you really from? Whereas what's interesting about having become an American as a naturalized citizen is that Americans really never wonder where I'm actually from. Mm -hmm. They just accept that this quote unquote melting pot will just embrace people from different countries without necessarily focusing so much on the country where you were born and the country of quote unquote origin as they say here in France. So in America, I always describe myself as Togolese. Uh, but the uh-huh. interesting thing is I go to Togo very often because my mom lives there mostly. And in Togo, they don't really see me as a native son anymore. <laughs> and so I'm really one of those people who can be considered citizens of the world. But at the same time, I do feel a little bit stateless because I do feel comfortable everywhere. But I do have to say that this neighborhood, Paris, is where I grew up, where I came of age, where I spent my teenage years. And it's probably the, the, the city that had the biggest influence on me and my cultural awakening. Mm-hmm. And so do you, do you find uh, that it's actually, despite all of the tremendous problems that are clearly happening in the United States, is it actually easier to be, um, to be yourself? Than, is, it, is the United States a place where uh, racial identity is more fluid or allowed to be more fluid than it seems to be in France? I don't think it's, 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 it's more fluid. I think it, it depends on socioeconomic status. It depends on education. It depends on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. The one thing, though, about growing up as an African immigrant here in France, an African immigrant who was then naturalized and became a French citizen, is that even though the French Republic is supposed to be indivisible and you're not, a so, well, you're not supposed to um, identify people according to quote, this or that affinity or cultural uh, affinity, or nationality of origin, it is still very present. And I remember growing up here as a teenager when we started going to nightclubs and I would hang out with my African friends and I would also hang out with my African-American friends who happened to be camped uh, here in Paris. And what I found was that African-Americans in the pecking order had a much more prestigious um, uh, standing than my African friends. And it was really interesting. And because I spoke English so well, having lived in Washington, D.C., when I was hanging out with my African-American friends, I was uh, very much perceived as somebody who came from a, a really elite kind of cultural awakening. And, 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 and whereas my, the real thing that I was interested in was how to bring African culture together with French uh, black culture together with African-American culture. And I found that a lot of French people really looked down on Africans because of this um, hierarchy in a way which is really looking down as people from the former colonies because they speak with an accent that is, is, is a little bit dismissed in, in, in conversations. And I was able to speak with a Parisian accent when I spoke French, but because I spoke fluent English, I was able to parlay that into access to some of the best nightclubs because I was hanging out with the African-Americans. And it was interesting to me that French people love African-Americans so much, but end up despising Africans in, in, in such a weird way. I've thought about this so much myself over the past decade that I've lived in Paris. Where do you think that comes from? Because I, on the one hand, I think, of course, the, the, the former colonies are something that the French know. African-Americans are more exotic. But actually, it all comes out of this interaction between Africa and Europe that resulted in the transatlantic slave trade. And, and it's not so neat as that. What is it about African-American um, status that makes a kind of um, 
that gives a kind of leeway to to Black Americans in Paris. James Baldwin, many people, uh, I have felt this in my own life, have have have, have spoken of the kind of the, the release from the all American skin game, the the racial binary when they come to Europe, when they come to Paris. But that's not been the experience of of other um, African descended peoples here. And I, I wonder what it is specifically about an African American culture that gets a pass here. I think that over the past fifty to sixty years, French people in general have been more and more attracted to American culture, right? The American lifestyle, Hollywood, everything, sports, music. This is something that African-Americans can kind of hang their hat on when they come here to Paris because there's been this tradition of very creative writers or jazz musicians or um, uh, painters who came here because they felt that there was freedom of expression here in France that they didn't necessarily see in Harlem or in a lot of the black American enclaves in which they came from. But so in my experience, just thinking through the way that Juliette Greco, who, who just passed away this week, spoke about her love story with Miles Davis and how she felt back in the 1950s to be in love with a black man from, from the U.S., it feels like French people have always admired the way that African-Americans express their, their freedom uh, by also kind of clinging on to the power of America as a nation that had actually saved France in the Second World War. Whereas most of the African colonies became independent in 1960. And so the first wave of immigrants came in the 60s and 70s. And they came, many of them came because they wanted to be educated in France, because the, obviously the schools in, in Africa were not that great. And others came as migrants because they were looking for work here. And they came as working class Africans who didn't speak French very well, who were not very educated. And as a result, the French really looked down on them and they didn't really respect their creativity that much anyway. And so it really took a while for French uh, people to recognize the uh, visual arts that were coming out of Africa, for instance. There was an incredible show at the Pompidou Center called Les Magiciens de la Terre, which really set the tone for a new generation of practitioners and artists coming from the African continent. But uh, before that, the art was just viewed as primitive, and it was linked to all these very negative stereotypes about what Africans were. Whereas I feel like African Americans really uh, were able to claim a certain... Um, superiority in a lot of these arts that the French uh, respected so much, and coupled with the fact that they had more economic power than the Africans coming in as immigrants. Right. As you're aware, the, the, the racial discourse in France seems like it's starting to change now, and there's a growing kind of movement towards an American-style identity politics among many um, African-descended French people and Arab-descended French people, where they want that kind of racialized recognition as having a distinctive culture. And that's that runs contrary in many ways to what the French uh, refer to as the Republican ideal. Can you, can, you, can you speak to that a bit? Is this a good development? Uh, is I think this it's a healthy a, development? I think it's a great development because when I was growing up here as a teenager, I, I began, I was trying to understand French culture and at the same time express my blackness mainly through my passion for hip-hop and what I saw as a major kind of change force coming through youth culture. And, you know, it was interesting because the hip-hop was getting big in France, but every time I really try to talk about African issues and blackness from um, a very kind of core identity perspective, no one really wanted to listen. They were interested in the art form superficially, but not really in the frustration that we felt 
as quote-unquote kind of second-class citizens here. And then what happened, though, about 10 years ago, I feel like Rokaya Diallo made a big, big statement. You know, I met her about 10, 11 years ago when she first started really being vocal about these issues. And she grew up in Paris and also in the banlieue. And she talked about her dual heritage, being Senegalese and, and being Peul and being raised by Muslims and also being very French. And the fact that she speaks French so well made a big difference because she was able to confront a lot of those public intellectuals in France who had never really questioned kind of this dual identity or what I call hybrid identities. And the fact that she was able to talk about the problem that black people face here with this kind of whole perception of being second-class citizen, the fact that she was able to talk about it and write about it and produce documentaries about it, I think that she paved the way for a lot of other people like Mabula Sumaoro and others who are mainly scholars and authors who feel that France needs to do a better job of recognizing the contributions of black people and African people, whether they're from sub-Saharan Africa or the Maghreb, to the modern French identity. Right. Can you speak more about hybrid identities? Uh, I think that's, you know, that along with your larger idea, uh, transculturalism, seems very appropriate to me in the current context. And that's the direction the world is moving in. But I wonder if you feel you, you published the book Transculturalism uh, in 2004 in America, and it came out in 2008 in France. Um, and it seemed very optimistic and hopeful about the world we were moving into. And then Obama was elected, and I was certain that was that was the future. And I wonder if you still feel optimistic about uh, our increasingly hybrid identities or if the backlash that we've seen with Brexit and the Trump era has made you reconsider uh, the inevitability of us uh, reaching this kind of um, more hybrid future. I think that um, things might change in the next few months, but I've been very disappointed over the last decade with the way that a lot of my theories on transculturalism have been debunked by the political discourse. So when I wrote that book, I was, uh, well, the American version of the book in 2004, and then the French version of the book, which is two totally different books based on two totally different experiences I've had in the States and in America and, and, and in France, I was really thinking that Obama was going to change the world. You know, his election was the single biggest thing that I experienced in my, in my lifetime, along with Nelson Mandela's um, 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 rise to, 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 to freedom and to power. And, and, and it felt that post-racial societies in a lot of these advanced democracies would be a reality. And I felt that a lot of European societies would try to learn from America's um, march towards a new type of understanding. But then what happened was the backlash and the fact that nationalist, xenophobic uh, theories started really going mainstream and, and, and the rise of the far right in many uh, European countries and in America, of course. That really had me thinking about was I too optimistic? Was I too naive in thinking that one person could change the world in that way? And I realized that it was. And, and what happened with Trump, what happened with Boris Johnson, with Brexit, what happened with Gerd Wilders in, 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 uh, in the Netherlands and, and so many other uh, countries in Europe showed that a lot of white people still want to be amongst white people. And what I saw growing up, again, in the 80s here in France, where, again, being African 
meant that I was perceived as not really ever being French, I felt that the fact that they could trace their ancestors back to um, the Gaulois or back to certain um, specific areas in France is something that was a big part of what they wanted to be. And the whole notion of hybrid identities or métissage and all these things that I was writing about, that was still something that a lot of liberal elites understood, but that the countries were not really ready for. That's something that I saw. And I saw that in the UK. I lived in London for many years. I saw that in, in Italy. I saw that in France. I saw that in Germany. And I even saw it in Scandinavian countries because I used to spend a lot of time in Denmark and Sweden, and I could see how the tide was turning in a lot of those countries. And so that had me question the whole Obama thing. And when he was awarded the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize in 2000. And First year yeah, of the presidency. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> 2008, 2009, um, I realized that the expectations were too high. And so one man alone could not change hundreds of years of discrimination, racism, and xenophobia. And in fact, uh, just the symbolic presence of him and his family may have even... Um, invited a backlash or I don't want to say invited because that makes it seem like it's his doing but it 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 prompted a kind of backlash that we're suffering through now um so how would you revise your your, your, your what is the central transcultural argument that you were making 15 years ago and and would you change that now would you revise that now yeah I was saying that because of mixed marriages because of more integration um, in a lot of neighborhoods, because uh, the schools were kind of seeing more diversity, we were slowly moving towards a post-racial world that would really embrace people's very complex hybrid identities. And as a result, we would not look so much at um, specific kind of ethnic um, allegiances or religious allegiances, and that as a result, we would just be willing to embrace other perspectives, and that this was going to happen worldwide and pretty much on every continent. And so I was wrong. I was wrong because of what if you even look at Islamic um, uh, radicalism, you know, and, and how that ended up being very strange in the way that people kind of felt that their religious identity trumped everything else. And I feel like now, if I were going to rewrite a book on transculturalism, I would take into consideration various forms of dissent that I've actually now discovered. But I want to hold on to your vision, and, and I hope that that is the vision that will win out. I still maybe naively believe that the world is ultimately going to move in the direction that Obama, um, that the election of Obama revealed to us and made us want to see come to fruition. I feel like Trump and this stuff is a kind of um, they're the death pangs of, a, of an old world on its way out. I have to believe that. Um, but I was surprised when I got a, a text from you a week or two ago um, about an article about myself and Glenn Lowry, Coleman Hughes, and John McWhorter that ran in Le Monde about the anti-conformists of the kind of the voices of dissent against the kind of new anti-racism. And one thing you said really caught my my attention. You said, you know, um, I've had to rethink the way I think about anti-black racism in America and how fundamental that is and, and what I was missing as an outsider. I feel like you more than me, but we both we move in pretty 
um, liberal international circles and you can kind of there are multiple realities that exist at once right and maybe what you're saying is that another kind of reality was revealed to you and it's made you empathetic and sensitive to a struggle that will be harder to get uh, to transcend than than even maybe i'm willing to concede still living here in paris what what was it that made you think this way it actually happened uh, in 2016 uh, maybe just a stone's throw from here I had hosted a dinner for Opal Tometi, who's one of the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter. And I knew that she was Nigerian-American, but then when she came over to dinner at my cousin's place, I invited maybe six people, including my then-fiance, who's very French and very white, and now wife, and mother to our son, and a a couple of other friends who are mostly Swedish and, and also African, basically very transcultural dinner. And she came, and she was very... Um, surprised by the diversity at the table and the arguments that we had we had many arguments that evening but when I looking back I realized that she felt that as a new American I didn't really fully understand some of the black struggles that they were um, pushing to the forefront with Black Lives Matter and as somebody who came to America via London and Paris as a Togolese French citizen, I couldn't really relate to the real struggles that led to the post-Ferguson Black Lives Matter activism. And at first I was very defensive about that because I felt that I created one of the most important hip hop cultural publications. You know, I interviewed Trace Magazine, Magazine. I interviewed rappers and, and actors and from and all, all different walks of provided American some life. iconic uh, imagery and from yeah. the culture yeah yeah and and you know Chioma Nadi who was one of our editors is now the new editor of Vogue.com so I feel like what we did was very significant for black culture but then I realized that there were aspects to what she was saying that might be very very real and because I didn't grow up in uh, inner city, black uh, Detroit or Baltimore or some other corners of uh, black America that I don't really know that well, I can never really understand what it's like to grow up um, underprivileged, underclass as a black person in America. And as a result of that conversation, I started thinking about my own identity and realizing that it might actually be more French or, or actually more African than this new American uh, nationality that I was so proud of post-Obama's election. So that's really fascinating to me um, because it seems to suggest that um, what we're talking about has much more complicated aspects to it than just pigmentation and skin and things like this. How do we suss out and understand where race starts and stops and class begins how do we separate class experiences and, and international blackness from domestic situations? And what does it mean to be um, a, a privileged black person? And how much do you how much of the black experience is is, is um, conceived of as a lower class experience? Uh, and, and what does it mean to to reimagine black identity for 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 a future going forward? I, I threw I, a I lot think, of questions yeah, at well, you at well, once. Well, this is something what you've just asked me is something that I've thought through a lot over the past few years. And it, I want to bring it back to my own kind of experience as an entrepreneur. 
So when I came to New York, I came as a penniless media entrepreneur with my small magazine, Trace, which I used to always say my small magazine because I was always kind of belittling our achievements. And then the magazine became very successful and we got funded by Goldman Sachs and it became an, a, a, a profitable venture. But the reason I mention that is because the person who helped me to do that, who was my business partner, Richard Weiner, is an African-American from the South Bronx who then was very, very educated. You know, he went to Harvard, he did his MBA at Stanford, and he, you know, he managed to then rise through the ranks and work at Goldman Sachs. But the reason I bring him up in his experience as a, as a, as a native African-American is because in dealing with culture and business and identity, I saw that him having been born in America gave him an edge on me because he had a lot more emotional intelligence on certain kind of everyday situations. And that came from what he might have experienced as a child being raised by a single mother in the South Bronx when people were smoking crack outside of his building. And so, you know, having experienced something similar on my mom's side, um, who my mom is a lot more underprivileged than my my dad is because they don't come from the same socioeconomic background. So in Togo, I saw poverty and I saw various levels of everyday misery growing up. But the situation in America is very, very different. And Richard Weiner really opened my eyes in some ways to what it feels like, perhaps, to grow up black in America. And he was aware in certain business meetings that we had of certain kind of racist situations even before I was. Oh, that you didn't pick up didn't on pick as up a on. foreigner. That's interesting. Yeah. And we noticed that, you know, when we were looking for funding, other people got funding before we did. And then he dissected it strictly just based on the color of their skin and, 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 and of their perceived kind of complex uh, networks. And so when now a lot of African-Americans talk about aspiring towards generational wealth, I understand what that means because most of my African-American friends grew up without any access to any privilege or education, let alone wealth, and they can spot certain things that are wrong with American society that it took me a while to even get close to, even though I've been living in New York for 22 years. I wonder if I can push a little bit on that. Do you think that despite moving through a world that has anti-black skin bias even as a, as a dark-skinned African-descended man, do you think that not having some of the psychological wounds and baggage uh, helped you in certain ways? By not, being, by not being so sensitive to certain situations or perceiving certain things, was that uh, in some ways empowering? It, it was, it was, but at the same time, it, it was a little bit strange for me because I, when I started doing a lot of work in academia in Boston, really in the MIT Harvard ecosystem, at one point I was um, the president of the Black Graduate Students Association at MIT, and part of that role was really mentoring um, black undergrads, usually freshmen who were struggling because, you know, they were the best student in their high school and all of a sudden they're at MIT and they couldn't compete with a lot of the white kids or Asian kids. And they, a lot of them were struggling in that first year. And what I found was they didn't really have any support system. They didn't really have anybody in their family who'd gone to college who, could, who they could bounce ideas off, who could help them with problem sets. You know, and so they had to rely on external networks. And the other thing that I found out in my time when I'm still very active at Harvard and MIT is that a lot of the 
best students are actually African students, Nigerian students, right. and yeah. not African American. Right. And and it was really strange. Um, and I realized that perhaps this legacy of slavery is something that is so entrenched that it's going to take so long to deal with it. And unless there's some sort of public policy that is all-encompassing that can deal with access to housing, access to education, access to mentorship, uh, it's going to it's going to be very, very, very difficult for young African Americans to um, claim a new uh, spot in society when obviously the, the odds are stacked against them. The residue of, of, of oppression. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I think about a lot is what do we mean when we talk about blackness? What does it mean for a, an, an institution like Harvard to say that it's um, got an affirmative action program that has a certain amount of um, slots that need to go to black people, but for that to be going towards a Nigerian who's a son or daughter of professionals who comes from a completely different experience than somebody who's Eidos, American descendant of slaves uh, from eight generations of, of Mississippi um, peasantry. You know, it's a really different experience. And we kind of, in America, we have a way of throwing that all under the basket of blackness. And, and, and the questions that you're, disent- that you're asking and the, the, the concepts that you're trying to disentangle are very important ones because I think that there is something that has to be taken into account when we think about what is specifically challenging to an African-American in America, just as we think what is specifically privileged about an African-American when you encounter them in Paris, you kind of, oftentimes our racial discourse gets so provincialized and we only think in certain national contexts. But what's interesting about you is that you have, you're bringing together thoughts on what it means in Paris, London, New York, all these other places. And of course, Africa. You're, you're, you're working on a venture now with MIT to bring online uh, university learning to to Africa? Is that, I am. Can you speak on that? Yeah, True Africa University is a venture I'm launching with MIT to create uh, what we call blended learning uh, programs. So it's hybrid learning um, programs with a bit of online and a bit of in-person uh, group assignments uh, to uh, hopefully millions of people on the African continent. So it's a huge venture. It's, it's a venture of a lifetime. But, but it's really, I couldn't have got there if I hadn't had my experience with Trace and even the True Africa media platform because my, my whole mission really um, in life has been about bringing black people together. So I'm that guy. I'm one of the few people who spent a lot of time with black people in Brazil. I own a house in Brazil. Black I, forgot, people in I forgot about that. Exactly. There's another yeah. cultural context. It's a that huge cultural context And that's a very different one. Oh, yeah. You know, South Africa... Uh, you name it, Jamaica. I've been to all those countries, all over Europe, black people in Europe and America. And what I found, though, is in general, what we have in common is self-hate and I'll just say it, an inferiority complex. And I can't tell you the number of meetings I've been to in Sao Paulo where if I showed up with a white business partner, things would be completely different. And that's because the receptionist, the black receptionist, at that company would just expect a black person showing up to be a loser. Wow. And, and so then I started writing about it, you know, through Trace and my, and my various uh, media platforms. And then I started attacking it from the angle of, say, hair. You know, hair is really easy, right? So black people, especially black women, always want to talk about hair and why do they straighten their hair? So I would start the conversation there. And I do have to say that... 
we have been belittled so often, humiliated so often, that unfortunately, I don't see any sort of real leadership for black people coming out of anywhere but the U.S. at the moment. And that's why I'm such a big supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement, because I feel like that what they're doing, which started in Ferguson and started as a reaction to Michael Brown in 2014, is going to be so massive that if the Afro diaspora and if continental Africa understands what Black Lives Matter is doing, it could be liberating for all black people. And, and I say that because I feel like we've got a lot of work to do in order to feel proud of who we are and what we've contributed to the world versus always thinking that we're inferior to white people. That's that's point. I mean, I think about just uh, earlier this summer after George Floyd and the protests that swept America, you had protests all over Europe and you had protests in Paris and people were using the English expression, I can't breathe, and the English expression, Black Lives Matter. And that seemed, and they were grafting that onto local issues too. But it seemed to give them a vocabulary or a language that was lacking uh, outside of the American kind of inspiration. It's interesting the way you connect all these dots. Um, But then again, you mentioned that um, Opal Tometi, uh, one of the the creators of Black Lives Matter, is in fact a Nigerian... Uh, descendant of Nigerian immigrants, so there is this interconnectedness, and it's and it's and it's more complicated than than things appear on their face, right? There right. is a kind of global black. Right, but she was born and raised in America, and most people would see her as purely African American and not as Nigerian American, just because that's her identity. Gotcha. And and those of us who came as outsiders, as immigrants, then we have a, a different experience. Absolutely. So what do you think is Maybe what is one of the largest misconceptions that, um, in your experience, in all the different contexts you move through, people have about Africans from Africa? I think that we have this kind of very negative stereotype that is attached to, quote unquote, us being lazy and 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 and, and being migrants and and really just um, looking for handouts in all these countries in which we settle as immigrants. And it's really sad because, you know, when you look at the way that the healthcare system works in a country like France or education, where the état providence, the welfare state, really provides for everyone, a lot of French people do feel that Africans have continuously taken advantage of the system that is provided by this welfare state. And then they come here as immigrants, and all they want to do is bring all their kids and, and make the most, in some cases, or make the least of our free public schools and go to our hospitals for free, never seeing a bill and just taking advantage of it. And, and I think that that's really problematic because a lot of Africans that I know would rather stay in Africa. They don't necessarily want to be living in Europe or in other countries. It's just because the countries that they came from have been so mismanaged. There's been so much corruption, um, so much bad leadership that they've been forced to flee. But, it, it, you know, I don't think Europeans are right to think that most Africans just want to be living um, off the state in, in Europe. So then is it, is it fair to say that one of the things you try to do is to improve, especially in Togo, 
um, society on a local level so that the, so that the need to migrate out uh, is diminished? Yeah, that's why I've been so focused on my youth entrepreneurship program that I started in Togo in 2013 that I'm very proud of. Uh, it's, we're now in our seventh edition, and it's an annual program with an accelerator and incubator for young entrepreneurs from all over Togo. I mean, Togo's a small country, only 8 million people, but most of the young entrepreneurs who've made it in Togo and outside of Togo over the past seven, eight years came through my program. And the way that we do it is very simple. It's we basically give them tools to better understand business decisions, personal initiative, how do you market yourself, how do you come to a meeting and try to sell your product or service, and it's worked. And it's worked so much and so well that we have actually been able to uh, piggyback on what the Young African Leaders Initiative is doing through the State Department. So Barack Obama created this program about 10 years ago called YALI, and I've been very active in that because it's pretty much the cream of the crop in Africa. Young Africans who have great ideas, big dreams, and they uh, basically are admitted to a program where they can learn about various things. And I happen to be on the track uh, for entrepreneurs. And that's been great because I really hope that the next generation of Africans really builds the continent as opposed to just wanting to move to America or wanting to move to Europe. Right. I mean, it's something when you think about the fact that many of the top students at the nation, at America's uh, best um, universities are themselves uh, um, Nigerian or Ghanaian uh, immigrants. It, it, it's quite a it's quite a loss of talent that could be captured in those own societies with uh, with top students, but also yeah. with nurses yeah. and, and 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 all kinds of, of 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 jobs that are needed in Africa and that unfortunately have been lost to people who chose exile. Absolutely. I, so I, to put you on the spot, what have you have you read anything or listened to anything or watched anything recently that you'd like to shout out? Any good books or movies or albums that oh, we should know about? Yeah. Um, the, I've, I've, I mean, the interesting thing about lockdown is I've um, I've uh, watched so many films. I've uh, read so many books and so many magazines, including the one that you were on the cover of, that it's really hard to kind of just point one. The, the one that I really liked, obviously, that I recommend everybody who's listening to the podcast watch is obviously The Last Dance. Uh, yes. I, that Michael Jackson, the Michael Jordan documentary is ex- extraordinary on so many levels. It's, um, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it was one of the best things I've seen all year. Yeah, it is. It's not the best thing. It is. And the other documentary, I, I actually like documentaries. That's why I became a documentary film producer as well. Um, the other documentary that I really loved is the one that just came out on Netflix as well, on Metro Gims, the French rapper. Oh, my daughter's favorite rapper. Really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, see, there you go. It's, it's excellent. Oh, okay. I mean, it's a little bit too reverential. It's a little bit um, overpraising, but it's very good because it really talks about how he was born in Kinshasa and with his Congolese musician father and his uh, homemaker mother and moved to Paris with his parents uh, in a time of political turmoil in the DRC under Marshal Mobutu, the leader of the DRC, and came to France as a penniless immigrant living in homeless shelters with his mom and how he created this incredible hip-hop group called Section d'Assaut and and, and found his own voice within that group. And, and became this huge um, uh, star in France where he literally filled the Stade de France, which is the biggest accomplishment for any musician in France. So I think he's one of the top three um, best-selling musicians in France, but the documentary is really interesting because it also deals with his faith and why he chose to become Muslim 
and why he decided to start living in Marrakesh. Um, very, very interesting. I didn't realize he lived in Marrakesh. Uh, he's from the 9th arrondissement in, in Paris, uh, I believe. Well, no, the thing about the documentary is he, because he was very nomadic and, and living in various homeless shelters, uh, there wasn't one specific spot where he stayed for a spots while. Yeah, him. exactly. <laughs> I'm going to watch this with my daughter. And uh, speaking of children, um, you have a very hybrid, identified, transcultural son with just about the coolest name I've ever heard of. What's your son's name? Jazz. Jazz Otto. <laughs> Jazz right? Otto. Grunitsky. Otto. Exactly. Jazz Otto Grunitsky. He's the coolest dude on the planet <laughs> already. <laughs> yeah. Well, I the, that, you know, becoming a father almost three years ago is probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And it made me realize how, um, in some cases, people think that he's my dead ringer and he's almost like my extension in life because he's just the same with respect to mannerisms and reactions. But I guess my mission now is to really help to create a better world for his generation. Because I've been very disappointed in a lot of the things that my generation did. Um, my generation, uh, as I'm approaching 50, my generation is called Generation X. And I was very disappointed with how we ended up kind of being driven by consumerism and material materialistic consumption and and this kind of very fake obsession with celebrity and i'm hoping that um his generation whatever ends it ends up being called will be super smart in really trying to bring the world together through music obviously his name is jazz so hopefully he'll be into music or art or whatever creative uh endeavor he might choose and i hope so too although don't be too hard on yourself your generation made i think the coolest magazines that's for sure <laughs> thank you claude thank you uh for coming by today and thank you all for listening the american library in paris has served english-speaking readers in paris and elsewhere since 1920 to read about its programs and events, please visit AmericanLibraryInParis.org. Please check out program notes for this and all our episodes on the AmericanScholar.org backslash podcast. Au revoir. See you next time.